0: Dwayne is going to be bringing us the message this morning, and let me pray over him. Father, thank you for, for Dwayne, and just, I just pray that you use Dwayne to speak your word and spread your kingdom. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Well I'll get everything situated just right here in a little bit. That okay, Luke? Okay. Well, a few days ago, Darla said, Who's speaking this week? I said, Well, <clears throat> I guess I am. So here we are. Then she said, Well, what are you going to talk about? I said, Second Peter. She said, Okay. Why? I said, Well, well, you mm-hmm. We kind of need to hear from it. And didn't give her a very good answer. So I thought about that a little bit. And um, I guess I have to say, I have to go back and think about what made me think about Second Peter. In our house, a good part of our morning routine, while Dara's fixing breakfast and I'm helping her out by swilling down coffee, we have Dr. David Jeremiah on TV. And that's just a pretty much every morning routine. I have long admired him as a preacher and a Bible teacher. And um, quite some time back, I heard him speaking about Second Peter. And I, I thought of that when, you know, when this came up. But, but really what the thought that I came to is that we don't pay enough attention to the little books. Uh, when we read the New Testament, you know, we, boy, we just love to read the Gospels. We like to study Ephesians and First and Second Corinthians and see what all those people were doing and, well, let's do better and so forth and so on. That's what we like to study. And same way in the Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, I just love to read Genesis and I just practically obsess over Daniel. And uh, Jeremiah and, and you go through Isaiah and you just marvel at the wisdom and the prophecy and all that goes on there. But in the Old Testament, there's a whole section of books called the Minor Prophets. And they're just little short books. Same way in the New Testament, you got first, second, third John, you got first and second Peter, you got Titus, and so on. And like in the Old Testament, they're called minor prophets. The only reason they're called minor prophets is because the books are short, and the message in them. Same here with Peter, first and second Peter, and so on. The message is very deep, very profound, and we really ought to pay attention to it. And so that's that's why I picked second Peter. <laughs> so I guess um, you know give a little better answer to what Darla asked me is Dr. Jeremiah reminded me of it, and I got to thinking about this. And I thought, well, you know, we ought to, rather than what we spend so much of our time talking about and thinking about, uh, we spent the whole winter on Wednesday evenings kind of slow walking through Romans. And at the very best, we just kind of hit the high spots, you know. We didn't really get into it in depth. So that's another example of one of the books we like to look at when we, when we get together for Bible study. But I would like to just uh, kind of start into Second Peter here this morning, and I, you know, probably not going to get very far. Uh, who knows if the occasion will come around to continue farther into it or not? Now, I don't know if you knew this or not. I, 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 this made me realize this as I was reading through one of the commentaries as I was preparing for this of the original apostle, original apostles, three of them wrote inspired books in the New Testament. Matthew, John, and Peter of the original twelve apostles. The other the only three that, that are in uh, the in the writings of the New Testament. Now um, we we know quite a bit about Peter. He is very definitely a main character in the New Testament. But I didn't know this either until I read this in this commentary. In the New Testament, through all the books of the New Testament, Peter's name appears 210 times. It's quite a bit. Paul's name, he'd be right there with him, right? Paul's name appears 162 times. The other, the remaining 11 original apostles combined, their names appear 142 times. So Peter's got them all shaded by quite a bit. So we know quite a bit about Peter and we often like to talk about Peter and, and um, you know, I can kind of relate to how Peter acts sometimes. You know, I'm all gun ho and ready to go. You know, Peter jumped right out of the boat and went walking across the water until he looked down and realized he was standing on water and he went down like a rock. You know, well, I'm kind of the same way. I can, I can make these brash statements. Yeah, I'll do this and I'll do that until a little bit of adversity comes along and then you kind of change your mind and rethink what's going on here. But as Peter went through his life, he, of course, we know that Peter's a mighty preacher in the book of Acts. You know, the very first day he went out there and preached and 3,000 people were saved from one sermon. Now, that's quite an accomplishment. Of course, it was the, the spirit working in Peter's life that did that. <clears throat> now, we, <clears throat> Bible scholars don't all agree on how Peter, you know, how his life ended, how it come out, uh, you know, as he... Work his way through we, we read and study a lot about Paul's missionary journeys well Peter was doing quite, kind of the equivalent thing and it's very obvious in the New Testament it's pointed out several times that uh, it was kind of agreed that Peter and some of the other apostles would be ministers would be evangelists to the Jewish people they would preach the gospel of Christ to the Jews Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles and we all pretty much accept that and agree on that But when you compare their life's work, compare what they did, where they went, there's not a lot of difference. And it's very simple. They were preaching the same gospel. They were preaching the same message. And it didn't really matter who they were preaching to, if it was Jews or Gentiles, they always had the same message to preach. Matter of fact, if you notice in Paul, every time as you go through Paul's missionary journeys, when he came to a new town, what's the very first thing he did? He went to the synagogue. Synagogues where the Jews hung out. You know, same way with Peter, he didn't really care if you were Jew or Gentile, but he was going to preach the same message. Well, that's basically what he did. Well, uh, most scholars would agree that Paul ended up in Rome. Uh, this his first letter was written uh, about ten years before Second Peter, before, before his second letter, the one we're going to take a short look at here. But his Second uh, Peter was written. Um, one guy states pretty emphatically 67 AD. The rest of them kind of hedge it a little bit and say between 60, 64 and 70 AD. Now they're pretty, pretty, uh, defend, or pretty definite about pinning it after 64 AD. Because what happened in 64 AD is Nero. We've all heard about Nero. Nero started burning Rome. The reason Nero was burning Rome is because he wanted to clear out parts of the city get rid of some of the people that were in there and clear out some of the old buildings because he wanted to build a new capital. So he would send his henchmen out to start these fires and hopefully burn a good portion of a section of the city that he wanted cleared. Well, it was very handy because he had these people called Christians, and he could blame it on them. And so that's what happened. So then he sent his uh, um, authorities out to capture these Christians and drag them in. Peter was one of them that was dragged in. Peter spent the last years of his life in a Roman prison, just like Paul. And actually, it was not very much time between their death. They were both put to death by the government, by the emperor. And they were both put to death and ended their life uh, in a Roman prison. Now, we're pretty sure that this happened by 70 A.D. because it was in 73 A.D. that the, the Roman army captured Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple and so forth, and we're just quite certain that Peter and Paul both met their death before that happened. So that kind of gives us a little background, a little context on on uh, Peter here as he's writing this letter. As he's writing Second Peter, uh, his first letter had gone out about ten years before and was scattered to believers all over. Uh, at the time, they called it Asia Minor, and when we look at a modern map, it's more like Turkey and the you know the Mediterranean region. But in that day, it was called Asia Minor. Well, his first letter was circulated all through there, and his second letter, then as he's writing this from prison, he's kind of writing this as, um, as, a, as a farewell, and it's kind of self-explanatory as you go through here, about how he's, you know, if you jump down to verse uh, 15, he says, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. He's writing down what he wants to teach us, what he wanted to teach the believers at the time, so that after he's gone... Any time you'll be able to know what I have to say. And that's basically what he's telling us here in verse 15. But he starts out here in chapter 1, verse 1 of chapter 1. And um, he says, Simon Peter, introducing himself a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours. Why don't you stop and think about that a little bit. Attained a faith of equal standing. Well, he is writing to the Jews here, primarily. So a faith of equal standing would be an apostle that walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, and saw him ascend. That would be an apostle of equal standing. In a sense. In another sense, an apostle of equal standing is anyone that believes. Anyone that's saved. Well, how can that be? How can we attain faith of equal standing with Peter, with Matthew, with Luke, and so on? And it's right there in that same sentence. Equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That gives us equal standing. That gives us faith of equal standing. However, it gives us faith of equal standing at step one, at day one. When we believe, when we accept, when we're saved, then we have a faith of equal standing. What Peter's concerned with here is how do we grow that? How does it grow? And that's what he's dealing with in this letter, in his instruction to us. And at this point, he doesn't really care if you're Jew or Gentile. He's just talking to believers. So he is presuming, he is making the assumption that anyone that is reading this is a believer, is already saved. And he's working from that assumption going on from there. He's going to talk about how do you grow your faith. And that's what we're looking at here. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Sometimes this chapter is called the multiplication chapter, or not the multiplication chapter, the math chapter. It's called the math chapter because right here in verse 2 he's talking about multiplication. We get it down here a little bit further. He's going to talk about addition and subtraction. So that's why sometimes it's nicknamed the math chapter. But he says here in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of Of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace be multiplied. Grow. Grow your faith. That's what he's getting at here. Verse 3 says His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to To life and and godliness. All things that pertain to life, all things that pertain to godliness, all things that will help us to grow, it comes through Jesus' divine power, by which He has granted, let's see, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Well, now it's not hard to see. If you look around today, it's not hard to see that we can pretty much all agree the world is pretty much given to corruption. The corruption comes from sinful desire. So that's what he's saying here: is uh, uh, through them, through his very great promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped. We want to escape from the corruption. This world is corrupt. It is corrupt because of sinful desire. Uh, the King James Version says lust, uh, and lust covers a wide gamut. It, you know It's the motivation behind a lot of things, behind just about everything, all corruption, basically. Um, and the thing is, we're living in that world. Here we are, called to be set apart. Uh, we are Jesus' own. We are saved by faith in Jesus. But we're living in a corrupt world. So how do we deal with it? How do we manage day to day? And he says right here, uh we may become partakers of the divine nature separated from that corruption separated from that sinful desire well we're going to come up against it we're going to see it we're going to you know people are going to say why in the world don't you this is easy do it and that temptation is there every day it's always around us so that's what he's talking about here it's because of jesus divine nature we're going to be able to escape from them. Escape from that. Now, it brings us to verse 5. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Okay, we've had multiplication. Now we're coming to addition. Add to your faith. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, he's going to list some things here that's going to tell us how to do that, how to grow our faith. Before we do that, turn with me, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9, I just want to read one verse out of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1. Now in my Bible, Proverbs chapter 9, the heading on it is the way of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1 says this. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. Now if you, if you go back to, way back into Old Testament times there was a very simple and quick way to build a house, to build a new abode. And the people moved around a lot, so they wanted some shelter because they were going to stay there a period of time, maybe a few weeks, few months, maybe a year or two, whatever it was. So they wanted a structure, but they wanted it to be able to build it quickly and easily. So if you were to look at a diagram of what construction of a house, of a small home, could look like in those days, from overhead you would see Seven posts, seven pillars. There were three at the back wall and two down each side with the front being open. Those seven pillars made it very easy to wrap fabric or grass or just about anything around there and make a, make a U-shaped wall and then you fashion a roof over it the front was open. But it took seven pillars to make that structure. Okay? So it says here in Proverbs, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. So, wisdom consists of seven pillars. Well, wisdom is a good thing. I'd like to have some of that, so how do I get it? It doesn't come free. It doesn't come easy. But lo and behold, look what Peter is listing here. He's listing virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Lo and behold, that's seven. Wisdom has hewn her seven pillars. Peter's going to tell us about seven things here, seven pillars that will bring us to wisdom and that will grow our faith. So that's what he's listing here in these three or four verses. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement, to add to your faith. Okay, you 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 have come to a saving faith. You have accepted Jesus. You have attained salvation. Now what do you do? Well, you grow. So I'm going to, Peter says, I'm going to tell you how to add to your faith, how to supplement your faith with virtue. Well, what's virtue? Virtue, there's a lot of definitions for virtue, but virtue basically is moral goodness. Moral, uh, moral goodness, moral courage might be a better way to say it. Just like I was talking about a little bit ago, we're living out here in this corrupt world where the things come up against us every day. There's always something to tempt us, always something that will bring harm to us, uh, to our lives, to our families, and so on. But moral goodness, moral courage, if you exercise virtue, that's how you gain the strength to overcome that, to walk around that temptation, to not you know, be drawn into that. Virtue is moral courage. Okay? That's number one in the seven. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And we can talk about knowledge for a long time. Everybody has knowledge about something or of something. But too many people make the mistake of thinking knowledge is just a matter of compiling facts. If I know enough facts about a subject, I have knowledge of it. Well, everybody's got their head full of facts about something. You know, it might be about the Bible. It might be about a particular book. It might be about a particular subject. It might be about how to make, you know, the electrical system of a car run. There, you can have knowledge about a lot of different things. And people seem to think that knowledge is just a matter of accumulating facts. Now, Nowadays, you can pick up your phone. You can Google any subject you want. And you'll make the mistake of thinking you're gaining knowledge. But what you need to be aware of, (laughs) you can Google any subject you want, but most of what you're reading is not really true. There's an awful lot of things out there on the worldwide web that are just flat not true. So you have to be careful of that. So as you think you're gaining knowledge, you're not necessarily doing what you think you're doing. What you need to know, what knowledge really is, knowledge is the ability to know the truth. You can know a lot of facts about a lot of different subjects, but if you don't know the truth, if you're not able to tell what's true and what's not, you don't really have knowledge. Knowledge is the ability to know the truth. Well, how do you gain knowledge? Right here. Because the more you read this, the more truth you will have, the more truth you will accumulate. And truth is knowledge. So, Peter is saying here, uh, add to your faith knowledge. Knowledge about Jesus. Knowledge about the Word. That's truth. That's how you you gain truth. Then he goes on, uh, faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. Now, self-control can be described a lot of different ways, too. But one really good way to think about self-control, you think about personal discipline. Um, I think the the King James Version, instead of self-control, it says temperance. Temperance is a good word. Because you take out the A-N-C-E and what have you got? You got temper. Control your temper. But I don't think that's a problem here. I I doubt if anybody here has ever lost their temper. (laughs) Probably everybody here has at one time or another. Temperance, self-control, self, uh, uh, personal discipline is a good way to think about that. Add that uh, to this list of things um, to supplement your faith. Self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness. Steadfastness, a good definition of that, is patience, able to persevere, um, being steadfast, being patient. It's not so much, uh, you know, sitting and listening patiently to someone like this. Think of it more like, you know, at, at some time or other, we all go through hardships. We all go through bad things happen in this life. They always do. The loss of a loved one. Uh, The bank forecloses on your house. A tornado blows down your barn. Something bad is going to happen to us. That's life. That's what it is. Being steadfast, being patient, is being able to endure that without falling apart. God's grace, God's patience, you will be able to patiently endure until you come through it. Because, um, you know... Time passes, uh, situations change, and eventually you do come through it. Uh, The loss of a loved one, you know, that, that, that changes your life forever. But when you come through that and you find that you have patiently endured, you will find that life is good. Life goes on. And so steadfastness is the patience, the ability, being able to endure with your faith in God, uh, being able to wait on God to bring you through that situation. Uh, steadfastness with godliness. Now, this is godliness with a small g. What is godliness? And it's, it's a very simple definition, and it's one that we need to work on a lot. Godliness is being able to obey, or not being able to, but just simply obeying Through love and reverence. You obey God because you love Him. Uh, You revere God because He is God. Godliness is simply loving, uh, is obeying through love and reverence. Simple definition, but not all that hmm, easy, I guess, is the right word to always live up to that, to always stick with that. And brotherly affection. Brotherly affection is probably one that we need to spend more time working at, uh, improving on. Basically, brother affection is how you treat fellow believers. It's not so much how you treat people you deal with every day, non-believers, people you deal with in business, whatever. Brotherly affection is how do you treat fellow believers. Now, uh, I, I'm trying to bring up the quote. I can't remember where the verse comes from, but brothers, be ye tenderhearted, forgiving one another, is, is what I'm trying to say here. How you treat fellow believers is being tenderhearted, forgiving one another. If you, if you get to the point where you think, okay, I've got this faith thing figured out. Now I can start telling fellow believers how to behave. You better back it up a little bit. You've got a problem coming, whether you know it or not. Uh, brotherly affection, how you treat fellow believers, being tenderhearted, forgiving one another. If your brother stumbles, that's not the time to say, well, I knew that was just a matter of time. That's the time to go say, okay, I'll help you up. Let's go on from here. You know, let's figure this out. That's what brotherly affection is. Okay? Then after brotherly affection, now, <clears throat> my, my translation says love. And I think most of the modern translations do. He says, "and with brotherly and brotherly affection, with love." Um, the, the King James version is charity. It says charity there, and I really think charity is a better word for this one, for the simple reason that when we say love, then we start th- talking about or thinking about. It's very easy to veer off into okay, there's spiritual love, emotional love, uh, you know, the, all the different kinds of love, and that's not so much what I think Peter's wanting to wanting us to Uh, concentrate on here when you, when you think about charity, thinking about charity, it's not just giving money, time, so on. Uh, charity is being able to walk with a person, listen to the situation, understand the situation they're in, understand their, uh, their, their spot, where they are. That's charity. It is giving time, money, so forth and so on. But that's not all it is. So I think charity is a better word because uh, it it, it helps us think more about uh, putting ourselves in someone's position, putting ourselves in someone's shoes. So he's listed virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brother affection, brotherly affection, and love. Seven things. Seven things. If we're growing in these, if we're uh, attaining these or working at it, I don't think we're ever going to attain them. But if we're growing in them, working at them, then uh, we're going to gain wisdom, like it or not. But without putting in the time and the effort and the work at it, I, you know, I don't think the wisdom will come. So he says in verse eight: For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. I can't claim these qualities. I can't say, okay, yeah, I've attained it. But are they increasing? Am I trying? Is this is this the way I'm trying to live my life? If they are increasing, then now notice what he says here. He says they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. He doesn't say if you're attaining these, you're, if you're attaining these, you're becoming effective and fruitful. No. He says, if you're working at this, and if they're increasing, they're going to keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. There is a difference. There is a distinction there. And, uh, and, you know, we need to pay attention to that. uh, From being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So really, it's the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ that's going to help us attain all these things. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. There's the subtraction. If you uh, lack these qualities, then you're forgetting about the gift that you've been given. You're forgetting about your faith. You're forgetting about salvation. So he starts out, he's going to multiply us. He's going to add to, he wants us to add to our faith. And if we forget these things, if we lack these qualities, then we're subtracting from our faith. We're subtracting from the gift that's been given to us. Verse. When he gets to verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers... Now, every time we see therefore, that, that, that's a signal, that's a flag to us. When you see therefore, you look back and say, what is it? What's it there for? What am I supposed to be looking at? Um... Uh, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Look at these seven things that I've listed. This is what we need to be. This is what our lives need to demonstrate. This is what we need to be growing in. Be all the more diligent to confirm to your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You will never fall if you practice these qualities. Well, I hate to admit it, but there's times I fall. So, obviously, I haven't attained the ultimate in these things. But if you fall, what happens? Jesus says, come on, get up. He'll pick you up and we'll go again. Because you fall does not mean you're out of game. It means you need to pick up and you know get up and start over. That's what happens when you fall. But if we're all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, there's something we need to be very careful to think about here, need to be very definite about. Don't don't think it makes this sound like by working at these things, we can earn our way into heaven, earn our way into salvation. That's not what he's talking about. We're not, we're not being saved by works, we're saved by grace. We have the gift of salvation, and then by practicing these, by growing in these qualities, we are, verse 12, no, verse 11, "...for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." By growing in these uh, attributes, by growing in these qualities, you are um, growing in, in your faith, growing in a more Christ-like way, your reward will be greater. Your reward will be greater. This is not how you earn salvation. Salvation comes to you as a gift. But by practicing these qualities and growing in your faith, that's how you grow your reward. Um, Verse 12 says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, just as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Uh, He's talking here about his earthly body. Uh, A couple other translations. One translation says tabernacle. One translation says tent. I like that. He says, just as I'm in this tent, that's what I'm writing to you, but I'm soon going to put off this tent. He's referring to his body, his physical body, as the tent that is covering him. That is, you know, uh, we, we, we this, this body that we pay so much attention to, work so hard to keep it from being sore and, you know, try to keep it healthy and so forth and so on. It's just temporary. It's just a tent. It's what we're living in. We're going to put it off and we're going to be with Jesus. And Peter says, I'm just about there. I'm just about there. I'm just about ready to put off this tent and go be with Jesus. And then back to verse 15, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. I wrote these things down so that after I'm gone, you can go back and read it, check it out, and see what it is that I'm trying to teach you. So what Peter's trying to teach us here is how to grow in our faith. Never forget that salvation is a gift. We don't deserve it, but it is ours by accepting it. Because we don't deserve it, we can't ever act like we do deserve it. What we can do, what we must do, what we need to do, is act like we appreciate it. That's the that's the takeaway that I'd like to leave us with today. What is it we need to know today? We need to know that we don't deserve salvation. We can't act like we deserve it because we don't deserve it. What we can do is act like we appreciate it. How do we do that? We practice these qualities that Peter is telling telling us here. These seven pillars of wisdom, the more we grow in that, the more we practice it, the more we intentionally, purpose, purposefully try to grow these qualities, it's, more, it's an act of appreciation for the gift that we've received. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Peter. Thank you for the message that he has for us. Thank you now that we could be here today, and we just pray your blessing on us as we go out. Uh, As we leave here, as the church scatters going out to meet our daily lives, we just pray your presence with us so that we really could look like a church to people around us. Just watch over and protect, bring us together safely again. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.